James chapter 1, beginning of verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven by the wind. For let not that man expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I read about a man whose personal hobby was making handcrafting violins. He used the best wood for those violins. He used all domestic wood. He He even imported some wood from foreign lands. He put it through the aging process to harden it. But for all of that, the tone he so greatly desired rested beyond his reach. And one day he found a piece of gnarled, twisted wood that came from the timberline where the trees stopped growing. And there in the blast of the winter winds, And in the slashing rain, there in the bleak remoteness of the solitude of a mountaintop, that wood was twisted and hardened. But the violin that he made from that wood, that grew at the timberline, emitted a tone like heaven's music that he had never found before. Sometimes God calls some of us to live at the timberline. It's not the place of, uh, where it's easy to live, but it's the place where God puts the music into life. It is the heat and pressure that gives value to a diamond. Just ordinary coal in the bowels of the earth under a pressure that exceeds a million five hundred thousand pounds per square inch in heat that is, excessive, that is in excess of 5,000 Fahrenheit. And there in the heat and the pressure, the diamond's beauty is formed. And we all have the, the raw material that reflects the glory of the Lord. And this raw material out of which our lives are made reflect the splendor of the Lord under the fire and the heat of the pressures of life. I tell you, character is forged in the fire. And the names of the great saints give testimony to that truth. John Wesley knew the the pain of a troubled marriage. 
His wife literally threw him around by the hair of his head. Be a good reason to get a burr haircut, I'll tell you for sure. <laughs> and when the people gathered to hear him preach outside, she would get in the crowd and heckle him. Adoniram Judson knew imprisonment in Burma. And his wife would go down to the ta- terrible, deplorable prison cell where they hung Adoniram by the thumbs and she would whisper through the cracks in the prison cell, Hold on to God, Adoniram. Hold on to God. And he lost a child in Burma. And he saw the death of two wives there. David Livingston, the greatest missionary in the history of the human race, lived at the Timberline. He wanted to go to China as a missionary. He had to go to Africa instead. And the conditions when he got there were not like he had been promised. And the relationships he had with other missionaries was stormy. His child died at birth. And his wife was paralyzed, giving birth to that dead child. His arm was mauled by a lion, and he was crippled for the rest of his life. And his in-laws raged at him in wrath for taking their daughter to Africa to die. Spurgeon is the greatest preacher in the English language, and he ministered out of personal pain. He had the gout and other related diseases, and he suffered from depression. His wife was an invalid, and she spent the ten most productive years of his ministry confined to one room, and one night sitting in her room around the fire. A log whistled in the fireplace, gases entrapped in the wood, were temporarily released by the fire, and it made a musical sound. He turned to his wife, Savannah, and said, It takes the fire to get the music. I want to talk to you this morning about the music of the fire. And I know that while you're sitting down and writing out your Thanksgiving list, you're probably not inclined to add fiery trials to the list of the ten most popular things for which you are thankful. But James did. And he said, Count it a source of purest joy when trials come. For he was not looking at the flames when he penned that. He was listening to the music. The fire does three things. First of all, it gives intensity to your conviction. Now James is troubled about this double-minded man he's talking about in our text. The man who can make no decisions, who doesn't know how to say yes, and he doesn't know how to say no. And he's constantly vacillating between decisions and opinions. He's like Mr. Facing Both Ways in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He's like the man in the Civil War who put on a blue coat and gray trousers so he could be identified with both sides. He vacillates between two opinions and can't make, can't make up his mind. And James says he's like a wave that slushes about with every breeze. Do you know what troubles the outsider as he observes the modern Christian? Do you know what troubles the outsider as he observes the modern church? the blasé way we go about our Christianity. And he wonders, is that all there is to it? Is that all that matters? The blandness of our worship. And he watches us in our worship and says, isn't there something to get excited about? 
the dispassionate, indifferent, insipid way we practice our faith. I used to be somewhat confused when I would read the book of James. I thought it was somewhat contradictory that James would start this little book talking about trials and faith and just immediately move into a discussion about how to make this Christianity practical. And it's a very practical book. It's the Proverbs of the New Testament. I thought, doesn't it seem like that, that verses 2 through 12 don't fit the book of James? I thought it was like he started out to do one thing and he changed directions, kind of like changing horses in the middle of the stream. And then one day it just dawned on me that the kind of people who are able to take their faith from the sanctuary to the marketplace, the kind of people who are able to make their faith take their faith from the theoretical to the practical, the kind of people who are able to live out their faith in the daily grind are the people who have been forged in the fire. And Paul is exhibit A of this. Read again the account of the trouble of his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, five times he received the 39 lashes of the Jews called the near death. Twice he was beaten with rods. Historians say, who know something about martyrs, that most people do not survive the beating of rods, and those who do are never the same again mentally. Shipwrecked and stoned, this man went through the fire, and he came out on the other side with a focus and an intensity about his faith that you and I don't have. And so he wrote to the Philippians, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching toward those things which are before, I strain to the goal for the prize. I strain. It's a picture that comes out of the athletic world. It's a picture of an athlete with his body bent and his hands outstretched and his head reaching forward and his eyes riveted on the goal. There's nothing casual about that word picture. For to the Apostle Paul, the most unlikely, intolerable unbelievable thing is to have a casual commitment to Jesus Christ. A casual commitment to your civic club, yes. A casual commitment to the athletic or the country club, yes. But a casual commitment to Jesus Christ, never. Not after what I've been through, he said. In Colorado Springs, Colorado, there is an institute called the Olympic Training Center. And there great, the great athletes are trained for the Olympics. Thirty of the greatest track and field stars in America are brought there. And they are placed, both men and women, under the most arduous training and discipline. They are photographed at 2,000 frames per second. Every breath is measured. Coaches are there with clipboards to mark every heartbeat and watch the, for the tiniest flaw in one's performance, hoping to gain at least a hundredth of a second in performance time. And these men, men and women submit themselves to that kind of arduous discipline. I ask you, why does society only associate that kind of intensity to athletic achievement and goals. It's the way Paul went after his Christianity 
And it's the way He expects every one of us to live. If there's the tiniest flaw in my technique, if there's the smallest fault in my pace, I want to know because I'm going for the prize. What are we saving ourselves for? I'm told that every winter a herd of caribou, 400,000 of them, leave a part of northeastern Canada near the Labrador and head by migration to their feeding grounds near Hudson Bay. 400,000 in one herd. And people who have seen that awesome sight say it is the most awesome thing in the natural world. And traveling by instinct across barren land and rivers, they go from Labrador to Hudson Bay. And about five years ago, a tragic thing happened. They came to one of the largest rivers in Canada and it was at flood stage. It was out of its banks. To try to swim that meant almost certain death. But they didn't turn back. Not a one of them sought a less, a more indirect route. They just plunged in and went on. 9,000 of them didn't make it. And their bodies strewn along that raging river back, a testimony of 400,000 animals by instinct heading for the goal. You say, well, that's, that's an animal. That's not a human being. They have better sense. No, that's the kind of focus and intensity God wants us to have in our Christian life. And it only comes at the timberline. It puts intensity in your conviction. It puts insight into your perspective. They will come with trials, maybe just a blister on your finger, maybe an aneurysm in your artery, maybe the loss of a wallet or the loss of a business, maybe that the plans for next week are ruined or your whole hopes and dreams of a lifetime crushed, but come they will. And James says two things about them. He doesn't say if they come. He says when they come. He describes them in two ways. He says they come at inopportune times. They come with surprise. They are waiting and, 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 and lurking beyond the tomorrow to surprise us. And on the calendar of God's omniscience and providence, there's a date circled for you when trials will come. Even the language of the Scripture suggests their unpredictability. In the New Testament, the New Testament word pyrasmos means trial. Pyrasmos. Does that sound like pirate to you? Pyrasmos. It's the very word from which we get our word trial. They're like pirates on the high seas waiting to launch a surprise attack. They come at inopportune moments. And James says they come inconclusively. He calls them various trials. The word is manifold, literally many colored. They come in every hue and shade. Same trial, different shade. It means this. Are you listening? It means that God's, the trial that God permits is a trial tailor-made for you. What may be a trial for me may not be a test for you. We see this in the ministry of Jesus Himself. For He didn't give everybody the same test. He said to the rich young ruler, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. He didn't tell, the, the, he didn't tell Nicodemus or the woman at the well that. What it implies is that 
Every trial is tailor-made. Every trial is of its own, own hue and shade. And when you write across this text, write three words. Write the word permit. Because every trial that comes has a divine permission, is, of, is permitted by God. You say, does God send trials? Not really. But He permits them. For we live in an imperfect world and imperfect things happen to us. And we're not exempt just because we believe. Write the word permit across it. Write the word purpose across it because every trial God permits is for some divine purpose. Write the word priority across it because there you get the answer. You get some insight. There you begin to understand what he's talking about when he says, let the rich man rejoice when everything is lost. Let the poor man rejoice when trials come. What he's saying is this, because when trials come for the first time you discover what is really important. And the thing that gets you through the trial is not the material things of life, but the spiritual. And when you begin to understand that the trial helps you get some insight into life's most important things, it's a little bit easier to accept. Trials put intensity and conviction. They put insight into perspective. They put integrity in our witness. Now I want to read again verses 3 and 4 and verse 12. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been, are you seeing this word? Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. The Williams translation picks up the idea and gives some, some real meaning to it when the, when, the, when the Williams translation has it like this. Trials show what is genuine about our faith. I love it. Trials reveal what is genuine about our faith. That's why iron ore, when it's put into the fire, it comes out on the other side. It's clean and pure and genuine. That's what Job meant when he said, He puts me in the fire and I come out like gold. There is something suspect about a faith that's never been tested. You tell me you have faith? I might say to you, well, has that faith been at the timberline? Has that faith been under the pressure and the heat? Has that faith been tested, you see? There's something suspect about a faith that's never been tested. And so the army is really not ready for battle as long as it's going through basic training. And any soldier will say, will tell you, that he has to be under fire. He has to be in the battle to become hardened and proven and worthy. And a ship will never prove its seaworthiness. As long as it remains in the dry dock, it has to get its hull wet. It has to ride out a storm. And what is true of ships is true of faith. It's when we cling to God and the storms lash. And it's when we keep on clinging to Christ and the fire heats up. It's when we keep on clinging to Christ And we have crushing criticism. It's when we keep on clinging to Christ and the storms come that there is some believableness about our faith. I can believe a man who tells me he believes 
if I've seen Him in the fire. Not only does it show the genuineness of our faith, James suggests it shows the durability of it. Oh, you say, well, sure, I've seen you come through the fire. I've seen you pass this test, but does your faith, is it, is it such that it can endure the long haul, the day after day, the day after day grind? Can it endure the long-term suffering? What about it then, you see? Well, you see, the thing that makes our witness believable is the fact that faith keeps on in the midst of day by day by day trouble. And so that's why James uses the words perseverance and endurance and steadfastness he means that when life knocks you down, you get up and you keep on pressing on because you know that God wants that ability of faith that endures and He knows that you'll never have that kind of durability as long as you travel downhill with the wind to your back. And that's why Joseph had to spend 13 years. It took him 13 years to get from the pit where his brothers threw him to the palace where God could use him. And that's why Moses spent 40 years on the backside of nowhere before he ever came back to lead his people. And that's why Abraham kicked clods in the Holy Land for a hundred years. You ask, why me? Because God is developing in you the grace of perseverance. And Jesus loved that word so much that He used it in the book of Mark and He said, He that perseveres to the end is the one who has saving faith. Do you really believe that trials do you a favor? If you do, you can count it pure joy when trials come. And if you do, you can place trials on your list this Thanksgiving. And if you do, believe that trials do you favor. You can join the Apostle Paul who was thankful in all things. And if you do, you can pray that prayer that God wants you to pray and I want you to pray. A prayer of submission that says, Lord, I just want you to mold my life. If it means the timberline, here it is. I want you to take my life and mold it like the potter molds clay. And if it means the fire to get the music, so be it. That prayer of submission that says, Lord, I want to glorify you in life and in death. So here is my life. Whatever the means, whatever the mode, whatever the method, here is my life. A prayer that James began to pray. I hope you can pray as well. And when you pray that prayer, we will hear the music of the fire. Let's pray together. Father, in this moment of invitation, I pray for a submissive faith
that is willing to say to you, O God, here is my life. Here is my life. Mold me to make me and shape me. Here is my life. In Jesus' name I pray. I wonder if there's someone, look here today, who would take his hands off of his life, her hands off of her life, and say, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I was talking with a little boy this week about how to be saved. I said, do you know what it means to trust someone or trust somebody? He said, I think I do. He said, it means that you count on them. I love it. I'm going to use it from now on. I just count on Him to save me. I just count on Him to take me to heaven. Have you ever placed that trust on Him to say to Him in an act of faith, saving faith, Lord Jesus, I'm counting on You. Would you like to come this morning and make that commitment publicly? Maybe you'd like to come this morning to say, I've never really prayed the prayer of total submission to the Lordship and authority of the Lord God Almighty. Here's my life. Whatever you wish, I would glorify you by living or by dying. While we give invitation... It's for you to come publicly. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.